0: introverted noise. Hurry up, Daddy.
1: right and welcome back to another episode of the pocket protectors podcast we got the new crew back once again somehow convinced nick to come on and record with us again but uh you know we'll go back to the traditional order of things the man the myth the legend the cutoff t-shirt okay actually no he's wearing clothes this time uh dr eric how's it going man
0: things are good man uh it's been spring break, so my family is is back to where we used to live in Wisconsin for a week, so I've been just working almost nonstop on football, so uh can't beat that.
1: Oh, Wisconsin. I always forget that you uh, you lived in the Forbidden Land.
0: I did. I did. I lived amongst. I did.
1: <laughs> and, and, uh, and Nick,
2: how are you doing? How you been? Doing good. Doing good. Was uh nice and seventy five degrees yesterday. So here on the New York area, New Jersey, so that was that was lovely. Been mm-hmm. a long winter, so yeah, man. It uh, it, it's it snowed
1: over this weekend in Ottawa. So <laughs> not near, not not nearly as nice. It wasn't actually to cold. It, it just uh, yeah, it snowed. But uh, you know, it it is a long off season, and I am thankful to to Eric for coming up with this topic because it is one that we talk about a lot but quantify very rarely so on this episode we are going to talk about coaching a little bit and uh, and i know eric's done a lot of work uh, over at pff kind of looking into coaching trying to figure out a great way to uh to really quantify using the information that they have there but i want to start with you on this one nick because uh you know you maybe don't have access to uh to all the information that eric ha- um eric does and You know, from, I guess, a more, you know, I guess a layman or a fan's perspective, when you think about quantifying the effects of coaching, I guess, where do you go? Where do you start? Really, how do you determine whether someone is actually, you know, a good coach or it's just kind of, you know, randomness that makes it seem that way?
2: That's a really good question because it's a really tough question because there are so many variables that go into what makes a football team a winning team or a losing team. And a lot of the variables that we have to measure football success are kind of confounding with coaching. It's, you know, it's the classic is Tom Brady good or is Bill be- is Tom Brady good because of Bill Belichick or is Bill Belichick good is good because of Tom Brady? Um, how much of Tom Brady's wins above replacement is actually part of Bill Belichick and, and how good are different players of different coaches and how good would they be with different coaches? It's, it's a really tough thing to measure. So, um, but you can definitely see the effect. And I think, um, other than quarterback, you know, your head coach is probably the most important person to the success of a franchise. might even be more important, depending on how you want to measure it. Um, so, uh, you know, there are ways you can look at. You can look at how good does a team do uh, based on their talent? What would you expect them to when a new head coach comes in? Or you can compare how they deal with injuries. But it's kind of hard to measure exactly how much does a coach contribute to the winningness of the team.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And, and, you know, I guess making it more Viking specific, because I know one thing that we can really point to is, you know, when you look at Mike Zimmer, the defensive, you know, play caller, he is an amazing defensive play caller. And I think that everyone would agree with that. You look throughout his career, the numbers follow. I guess, you know, Eric, I'll, I'll, I'll flip to you on this one. Is it easier to, to pinpoint when you're thinking of an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator and their skill? Versus kind of the the head coach and and being that person who brings it all together, based on you know all of the very complicated things that Nick just laid out as to why it's difficult to really uh, attribute blame or, or credit where it uh, where it should go.
0: Yeah, I try to I try to make sure that I'm talking about the play caller specifically, just because those are the guys that we want to be able to like project when they switch teams. So like when Sean McVay goes from Washington to. Uh, LA like I want to be able to say like he transform you know translates this Vic Fangio goes from Chicago uh, to Denver I really want to be able to like you know qu- you know basically say like this you know he's bringing with him this superior play calling from the defensive coordinator spot so I generally think of play callers but in that realm like Mike Zimmer last year depending upon you know what iteration you're using of our of our model. He was the best. He and Fangio were the two best play callers rolling average over the last two years. So um, to Nick's point, you really want to do on a play for play level. You want to be able to say how good is, are, are the groceries that this guy's dealing with and then using something like EPA or using something like uh, you know, win probability added's a bad one, but like something like that, you really want to say, okay, how good is the meal type of thing? Um, and, and we get that and we get like the kind of guys you would expect. We get, we get Zimmer, we get Fangio, we get Betcher, Casey Rogers, Al Holcomb, Todd Wash, those kind of guys defensively, which are like not wholesale names, but then you go to the offensive side and you get Andy Reed, Randy Feekner, Josh McDaniels, Sean McVay, Frank Reich, all the names that you would imagine. And the interesting ones are like the ones that don't jump out at you. We want to be able to explain why, like Pat Shermer. Why is Pat Shermer 10th in our coaching rankings? Well, the last two seasons, his offenses have been relatively efficient given their quarterbacks are Case Keenum and Eli Manning. Um, Randy Feechner like Ben Roethlisberger was not a good player last year and they were able to scheme a uh, good offense despite that. So like it, it's not a perfect thing. That as, as Nick said, there's a lot of confounders, but uh, I think we're able to, to, to quantify it quite well.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of confounders. And one of the things, uh, Nick, I wanted you to get you to speak on because you did a – it was a a one-off tweet. I don't know if you even remember it, but you were speaking to uh, DiFilippo and just kind of schematically how bad he was, just using EPA as one of the ways that you were really calling that out. And uh, if you do remember the tweet that I'm talking about, I was hoping maybe you'd be able to expand on that thought. And um, Is that something that you look at when you're kind of doing your analysis and looking at, you know, which coaches are good, which ones are bad? Kind of how you incorporate something like EPA or or EPA for first read into your analysis when uh, kind of making those, uh, those determinations.
2: Yeah. The neat thing about EPA on first read throws is that those are usually not always, but they're usually something that the offensive play caller has schemed up, Um, you know, on a scramble drill or when, when they moved off, maybe something else is, is going on there. But on those first read throws, it's usually the play caller wants it to go this way. Um, and so you can you can use that. It's not a perfect measure because there's so much else that goes on to, you know, where the quarterback is going to throw the ball and what the first read is. But uh, you can use it as a rough proxy for, I think, um, how efficient a play caller was in that given time frame. And um, I think in that tweet you mentioned, I, I was mentioning that D'Filippo's, uh, or I should say, Kirk Cousins' um, expected points added on first read throws was something like 0.03 the NFL average is 0.10, um, so well below average. And you have somebody like Mitch Trubisky, who graded out as one of the worst starting quarterbacks in the league, maybe the worst, um, and his EPA on first read throws was like 0.25 or something. And then you have, you know, Pat Mahomes with Andy Reid. The EPA for fourth throw is like 0.4 or something. So clearly, um, when you factor in the fact that, yeah, you know, the Vikings were under a lot of pressure. Um, but with Diggs and Thielen and some other talented skill players in that offense, an EPA per first read throw of .03, I think is pretty damning in terms of uh, Defilippo's effectiveness as a play caller.
1: Yeah, and Eric, I guess, and you know, I know that you've, you've been doing some work on this, but I was uh, hoping maybe you'd be able to walk us through it at a high level anyway, kind of uh, what you're doing and, and how you're really pulling it out to, to help us understand you know which coaches are good which ones are bad and then uh if you could let us know how predictive that is because I know that you know generally when we're talking about you know teams we we talk about you know offenses being more predict offense being more predictive because it's really the quarterback kind of out there uh being the one that that is pulling the trigger when you look at coaching is that something that is predictive outside of you know just having your good quarterback from from year to year
0: Uh, Yeah. So essentially what we do is we have our grades in each facet of play. We adjust them for seasonal effects. We adjust them for opponent and then we fold them in. We use a model to say what would be the EPA expected on a play like this. And then, and then after that we take the difference and then we aggregate the difference and we, we have a, a way of essentially throwing out plays that are not normal. And then like, there's only so many second and twenties uh, backed up. So like, we're not going to like overreact to those. So we take plays that happen a lot and we basically see how a coach does relative what you expect them to do um, in terms of predictive power. Yeah. It, it goes into our models to sort of pick who's going to win a game essentially. And it's interesting on a, on a it's like a I would say a second or third order variable but what it was able to do last year was to tell us that the Kansas City Chiefs were a pretty good value to win the Super Bowl um we had them at about five percent which was higher than the Steelers uh higher than the Chargers teams that were like I think Vegas odds were better than them um and we were always we were sort of going back to the drawing board um And essentially going in and saying, okay, well, why is that true? Oh, it's because Andy Reid is the best coach in our coaching metric offensively. So um, they're pretty, I would say it's not as stable as player metrics, but it's pretty stable year to year. And when a coach changes teams, it tends to stick and it's a pretty good thing for predicting game to game.
1: So with that said, bringing it back to uh, to the Vikings, Nick, what are your thoughts on Gary Kubiak and what his history tells you about maybe what we should expect for the Vikings and and how he might be able to help us out offensively as, uh, as we move forward with things?
2: Yeah, Kubiak's an interesting example. I said before that, you know, the NFL keeps trying to find the next McVay, the next Kyle Shanahan, and they should because obviously those are two of the best young play callers to come into the league and, quite some time. Um, And Gary Kubiak is kind of like their uncle in the coaching tree. Um, It was Mike Shanahan and Gary Kubiak, who was Shanahan, Mike Shanahan's OC. And from there, came Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur and the other branches of that um, whole coaching tree. So Kubiak is, is that kind of it's an, it's an outside zone focused run scheme and play action builds off of that. Um, And so that's kind of the, Play calling, you you might expect in terms of how good he is. I mean, obviously he had success as a head coach, but you know you look, you think of that Broncos Super Bowl win. It wasn't really off the back of the offense and Peyton Manning. So, um, in terms of uh, what to expect, how good the offense is, you know, I think Kubiak was a right guy to bring in, especially as. Ah, uh, Stefanski was trying to install outside zone, um, and so he's he kind of goes to one of the big experts. But being able to predict what Stefanski is going to do as a as an offensive play caller as Kubiak is the last time Kubiak was coaching was a few years ago. Um, completely different personnel. So. Um, and Stefanski is just an, an unknown because this is, other than those three games last year playing with DeFilippo's playbook, we don't really know anything about how good of an offensive play caller is. We have some data, like Pat Shermer, who's a good offensive coach, wanted him as his OC in New York before Zimmer shot him down. Um, so he, he was widely thought of. Cleveland really wanted to bring him in. They almost hired him as their head coach. It was down to him and Freddie Kitchens with the Browns. Stefanski apparently had a big appeal to the uh, the analytics guys in the Cleveland office, which – if you're me or eric's probably reassuring for Vikings fans but um it, there's there's so many unknowns in there that it's hard to tell how good that pairing is going to be next year for the offensive play calling
1: yeah that's that's a great segue cuz uh eric on uh the last episode of the forecast and i think i might be one behind uh that was one of the things that you you guys called out is uh as you kind of moved into this next year um figuring out the appropriate way to 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 deal with these kind of changes where like you know there's a coaching change or maybe a big piece moves on offense like you were mentioning with the Vikings and Kirk Cousins it was tough to really figure out what the team was because such a huge piece of you know how they would perform offensively it changed and so it made it difficult to really come with a, a strong conclusion on, on on what they were and um yeah, it was difficult to really trust maybe sometimes what the model was telling you one way or the other because such a huge factor had been had been changed. So with the Vikings and and kind of as we're moving forward here, um, yeah, how do you project forward? Especially when you even have you know in some circles and some Vikings podcast, uh, you know, you have you know people saying that you know Kubiak's really the de facto OC, but then you have others, you know, Stefanski has the title. Like, how do you model something that is so? Poorly defined as that when you're looking at how you're going to project the Vikings into next year.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. I think for now we would, I we sort of assume that it's going to be Stefanski and we kind of have a replacement level coach, du jour kind of thing. Uh, sort of essentially make him uh, so. A, we don't count the three games Stefanski had at the end of the season for. I think for Vikings fans for the very same reason we wouldn't count Shermer's last eight games of 2016, right? When you're calling somebody else's offense, it, it's not as, you know, you're, you don't get to really do much of, of your own in terms of ideas and things like that. So we certainly shy away from that. Um, and then from there we just don't have that much data. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is like Gary Kubiak could be Gary Kubiak or he could be Mike McCarthy, who was a great offensive mind early in the last decade, not so much later on. And since he's not actually calling the plays, it's sort of like, you know, who knows type of thing. So, um, so for us, we, we essentially treat it like a replacement level coach um, who's coming in. It's not the worst coach, obviously, but it's somewhere in that like 30th, 35th percentile. And then, and then, and then we make him sort of earn it like as, you know, the weeks like evolve by if he's a good coach, the model will have learned that to some degree by like week four,
1: and and the last time Kubiak was calling plays, how did he look in your model? Because uh, on one of Matthew uh, Ma- Matthew Coller shows, uh, he was mentioning or, or sharing an anecdote in which uh, your Richard Sherman was basically saying that you know when they lined up, your players knew what was coming and were calling out the plays, yeah. and they become very predictable. Is that something that showed up in the numbers, or is that just kind of a a, a nice story that you know Richard Sherman is is known to? that to spread from down to down
0: yeah i mean that's a great question so i just looked at 2016 week 22 which is basically the end of the season um and these are the these are the coaches so we have 39 coaches because there are some coaches that overlap uh but basically it goes Dowell Loggins, pep hamilton gary kubiak mark Tresman geep christ rob boris john D. filippo were the last seven names on the list so he was not effective near the end there. Um, but again, you wonder like how much of that is the fact that Denver had seismic shifts in personnel over that time, namely at QB, um, and how much of that was him you know, health-wise and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, near the end there, he was very much in the conversation. So this was 16. So he's very much in the conversation with some of the guys who struggled. The top of the list would be guys like Shanahan, Peyton, Lombardi, McDaniels, McVay, Ken Zampezi, uh, who now coaches in the AAF, Jim Bob Cooter, Greg Roman, Andy Reid, Mike McCarthy. So, like, McCarthy falls from 10th in 2016 all the way down to you – know, he was probably bottom 10 uh, in 2018. So, it just shows you how much things can change. And so, you ask the question, like, is did Kubiak lose his fastball? Is he better in this role? We all know Brad Childress, for example, is far better in, like, the consulting-slash-head coaching role than he ever was at calling the actual plays – so those are just like questions that I think like we'll have to let the, uh, the data over the next few years answer.
1: Yeah. And in, in a situation like this, um, how much do head coaches actually change the way like let's, let's take it to offense. So how much does an offensive coordinator actually change the way a quarterback actually plays? Cause Nick had mentioned you have, you know, someone like Trubisky that I think most of us would acknowledge not a great quarterback, but and didn't play like a great quarterback, but based on scheme was able to have a lot of success. Um, so I guess when, when we're looking at something like this, like a Kubiak, like how much can we expect in terms of, of changes out of Kirk Cousins or will everything that we're hoping that will be better just be a matter of the scheme we'll need to get it for us?
0: Uh, I I think that there, you can certainly make changes that will that will highlight a player's strength i don't think you can make a player substantively better if that makes sense. so like jared goff for example like i would say his truth is somewhere in this age-adjusted curve from 2016 to now and rob boris and you know uh jeff fisher got the absolute worst out of it that, the, that a coach could and mcveigh is getting almost the absolute best out of it and that's why we see such this seismic shift I would say with Kirk, like, honestly, the Vikings had some luck last year to some degree, like some of his fumbles that weren't recovered or some you know, inter- like he didn't have and he kind of like tightened down a little bit. A lot of some of his plays, like some of his interceptable passes weren't intercepted, so on and so forth. And yet, like, I think Filippo got almost the absolute worst you could also get out of him. So then the question becomes, what is Kirk's average plus? A coach getting the absolute best out of it Th- those are all questions that i think like we'll have to follow along and see because um you know it's sort of difficult um when i plug you know i am looking forward to when the schedule comes out so i can do the wind simulations we'll have to see like what what going from de filippo who's worse than the coach that we're going to put in for stefanski uh what that ends up doing to the wind projections
2: Maybe one interesting anecdote here that is a little germane is what Frank Reich did with Andrew Luck last year. He didn't really um, change a ton about how Andrew Luck plays football, but he did specifically tighten his footwork so that when he was dropping back to pass, it was a tighter, more more um, shorter, chippy, uh, st- shorter steps in the, in the drop back. And what that did was it made it easier for the tackles to pass protect because they didn't have to get as much depth. Um, as they were kicking back so and that you know was in addition to them investing a lot of draft capital in the offensive line and to um, you know kind of transforming and getting the best out of that offensive line there that also contributed to much better substantially better pass protection just kind of like an overnight uh, night and day change so that's okay. one example of something that a coach can do so maybe yeah. we see something similar his
0: time to throw figures were substantially less than when he was playing early on in his career, which I think that speaks to your point. Um, but I do think that like sort of a seismic shift in, in like the way that they played offense, but not necessarily in the way he was asked to play offense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Nick, and then uh, there's obviously, you know, we, we signed an offensive lineman uh, who has had some somewhat bright moments in his career last year was not his, his best season, but um. I know that you you put a great you know cut up of uh, of Josh Klein on uh, on Twitter, and I was wondering, I guess, what your thoughts are on the marriage between what Josh Klein can do based on what you've seen of him and what Gary
2: Kubiak will likely be asking of him as uh, as the scheme comes in. He's an interesting case, and I think we saw some criticism of the signing understandably after he got signed because his best grades as a run blocker came when he was doing pretty much the opposite of what Kubiak and Stefanski wanted to do. His best grades came when he was in the, with the Patriots who have always run a kind of power running man gap blocking scheme and um his last year he had a very very poor run blocking grade and that was when LaFleur came in and switched to uh, a lot more zone running inside zone running and a lot of outside zone running. Um And so you might want to conclude from that, that why did we get this guy? He looks like a perfect man blocker and we're asking him to do something that he sucks at. Um, I think if you actually watch him on tape, uh, his run blocking is uh, it's not great in in anything, but I think he was better when he was asked to block in space um, had decent quickness and and balance and was able to sustain blocks, um, was able to connect on reach blocks, stuff like that. That's, so he has kind of like the tools to be uh, a good, maybe good as overselling it, but a solid run blocker. Um, and then his pass blocking grades have traditionally been um, above average. So as you know, over the last three years, they're they're solid. So um, you know the upside is you know the outside zone scheme plays more to his strengths and. Um, even though he graded poorly in run blocking, that probably came a little bit more from when he was asked to do the more man blocking stuff, whereas when he was doing outside zone stuff, uh, it looked better. Maybe not great, but better. And so if you get the best development out of there, the best coaching, maybe he turns into you know a solid starter, which is kind of all the Vikings need. So,
1: Yeah, Eric, and, and where are you at with, uh, with Josh Klein and the fit and kind of what he's done best based on the metrics and, and the data that you're able to look at?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a a similar conclusion, I think, from right now. It does look like, you know, he, over time he has struggled with with what the Vikings want them to do. I don't don't think this in any way changes their approach to the draft. I think if one of, you know, I think if, you know, Williams, Reisner, uh, Little, Kahuste, you know, all those guys, like if some combination of those guys get to them at pick one, uh, or two in the in in their draft, um, they very much have to consider them because I don't think Klein's going to be anything like anything having to do like with a long term answer uh, at at the positions because like it's the same thing with Remmers like they dra- they signed Remmers and he was a good you know addition and in the best situation he can do fine but Brian O'Neill is going to be a pretty pretty good player for the Vikings so. Uh, I think he patches a hole a little bit, and hopefully hopefully he doesn 't actually have to start to be quite frank,
2: so Eric, I have a question for you if what does your what does your wins of replacement model suggest about how the Vikings should prioritize different positions in the draft, and I know a lot of people kind of want. Uh, maybe a TJ Hawkinson at 18 or maybe like DK Metcalf at 18 or a, basically um, an offensive skill player, because those are the premium positions you traditionally would want to spend your premium capital on guard is not usually a position that you spend your premium capital on. And it's also not a position that, uh, you know, affects your bottom line wins as much as yeah. a star a wide receiver. So I'm interested in, but the the flip side is that the Vikings guards are so catastrophically bad right now. That um, if Danny Isidore were playing games, you would probably lose more games from him playing than Treadwell, even though Treadwell's uh, well below average receiver. So I'm interested in what your take is on that.
0: Yeah, the tough part about receiver um, and tight end is those positions when they hit are as valuable as anything other than QB. The issue is always like the learning curve is higher for them. And so, you know, and frankly, a lot of them don't end up being valuable at all, a la Treadwell. And so for, for my money, like you brought up a good point, the, the value difference in going from below replacement level on the offensive line to average is worth more than going from average to great, in which case, you know, from a bang for your buck perspective, it's not so much the wins above replacement that a guard nets you. It's what they have right now, which is.
2: Often, How many of those
0: losses below replacement we're at? Right. So then, so you're adding to that because you know if a guy can get you a quarter of a win above replacement, the other guy was losing you a quarter, then now you're talking about a half, even mm-hmm. though a half's really hard to get from an actual guard. So that's kind of like where that's kind of like where you know where I'm at there. Um, the other issue is so all that aside. I'd rather them draft. I'd rather them if they were felt this way about like Greedy Williams or uh you know one of the top defensive backs. I'd also rather them go after and consider that approach as well just because I think you can never have enough Mike Hugheses and never have enough Mackenzie Alexanders and never have enough of those guys um because they are like they move the needle a ton. Um but the offensive line is such a pressing need for the Vikings, and they are so bad there that I do think um, that's, part of that, that's part of what goes into my thinking.
1: Eric, could you imagine the takes if they drafted a corner in the first round of this draft? Oh, my goodness. I, I just kind of want it to happen just so we can watch Vikings Twitter and – Vikings Reddit and Vikings everywhere on Facebook just burned to the ground (laughs) because
0: man. Right. I mean, but the thing the thing about it is is like you're we talked about this in the chat the other day. I mean, you're you you are a couple bad luck turns away from having your three corners be Holton Hill, Mike Hughes, and Mackenzie Alexander. Right? Because Trey Wayne's might leave via free agency. Xavier Rhodes, as good as he's been. There's a non-zero chance that he's washed, like, so I th- I do think that go that comes into thinking right in terms of like, well, okay, Mike Hughes and Mike Hughes is coming off an ACL. Mackenzie Alexander's really had one good year, uh, and Holton Hill's a undrafted player who had you know for what it's worth personal issues coming out of college. So like, you you go you, that position is a position of strength for the Vikings, but no team that's at a position of strength at corner. Is all that far away from having it be a
2: weakness. I think Vikings fans are a little biased against drafting corners because very strangely, all the corners they've drafted have kind of been uh, underwhelming at first and then eventually solid and then maybe kind of pretty good. But, you know, draft picks either often bust, they totally suck, they never get snaps, or if they do get snaps, they're not good, or sometimes they pan out really well. And when corners pan out really well, that's about as valuable as almost anyone other than quarterbacks. So, you know, if you draft, uh, you know, a a, a Jalen Ramsey or somebody who's going to be a perennial Pro Bowler, the value there is so high that it just makes sense to keep drafting them. And and I think Vikings fans, you know, they think of a first-rounder and they think of their experience with Trey Waynes where he didn't really see the field at first. And when he did, and he eventually got playing time, but he was just kind of meh. And then, you know, he looked pretty, you know, improved last year, but, you know, hardly a Pro Bowler. But the thing is, you draft a, a first-round quarterback and you might be getting a pro bowler and then that's transformative for the team. And that's on top of, you know, Rhodes is getting older and he did not have uh, a very good year last year and Trey Waynes looks like he's uh, might be gone. So, Yeah, the,
0: the, the Rhodes part's interesting because he's been so good that we sort of forget that in twenty at, in the first half of 2014, he wasn't very good and in the first half of 2015, he was almost unplayable. And, and then in 2016, he, he missed the first two games, but came back and was basically brilliant the whole year 17. He wasn't quite as good, but he was still good enough to be an all pro. And then last year, but the, the, the thing about him is also sort of like his type too. He's kind of like a, a bigger corner. And so like, I always, and of course this is like an edge case, but I always think about guys like Brandon Browner. When I think about big corners and like the way they might not always be able to like withstand age. Um, But you know, so hopefully Rhodes continues to to be a good player for the Vikings. But there's always that chance that he won't. And then Wayne's, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem like Wayne's is like going to be a Viking for life. I could be wrong though.
1: Yeah, and, and you guys uh, kind of uh, jog my memory on on a, a question I definitely wanted to ask on this one because we're talking about coaching and talking about defense, and we're kind of half joking, half not about the Vikings. Very often, uh, stalking Zimmer's cabin cabinet with the, uh, you know, the best corners. We're saying those are the most valuable players. And and the Vikings have really built their team around adding high-value players um, at these important positions on defense early and often. And so I, I wanted to get your takes on, you know, Zimmer. It's just kind of accepted that he is a great defensive play caller. Um, where is that line? Like, how do you find that balance, especially on defense, where it does take really all the players working together Um, like how much of a, I guess, a downgrade can you get in the defensive talent that can be offset by the great scheme or play calling of someone like Mike Zimmer, because that's a take you see very often where it's like, okay, it's time to go for the offense. It's time to let the offense load up. If Zimmer's such a great coach, he should be able to make up that difference. How do you kind of ride that line to make sure that you don't go too far in the other direction? Um... Yeah, and, and you end up with, you know, Holton Hill caliber type corners out there uh, that you're picking up maybe in, in, you know, the end of day two, start of day three type of thing in the draft.
0: Well, I think we've seen this tested, right? I think we've seen this tested by, by Bill Belichick, right? They're probably the greatest uh, football mind of all time, especially on the defensive side. You know, early in his days in, in New England, I mean, the players that he had, you know, Willie McGinnis, uh, you know, Ty Law, Teddy Bruschi, uh, w- Vince Wilfork, uh, Ty Warren, you know, uh, Richard Seymour. And, like, I, you know, they have good players now, um, but it's not like they, like they let Trey Flowers go. The only real big-name person they've signed uh, is Stephon Gilmore. They keep uh, McCordy there at the free safety spot. They got his brother for cheap, but, like, they sort of test that. I think Chicago were really going to get an interesting look. Um, at what happens when you take an elite coach away from an elite caliber group, uh, you know, uh, personnel-wise. With the Vikings, like, they went from last in the NFL in points allowed in 2013 to, like, middle of the pack in 2014, and they didn't change a whole lot in the way, you know, the personnel. They got rid of Jared Allen, and I think they diminished the role of Chad Greenway and that kind of thing, but really they were playing with Robert Blanton at free safety. Like, so... Uh, I think defensively, like and Brian Burke was, you know, kind of came up with this too. It's like I think defensively, the most important person is that defensive play caller, which is which is probably why it's somewhat unstable because those guys end up being coaches, Uh, you know, they move around quite a bit, a la Wade Phillips, a la you know Tony Dungy, you know, all those guys.
2: I think with the Vikings and with Mike Zimmer specifically, a lot of it is um, how much does Zimmer have to scheme to help guys who he doesn't trust. Think you saw this with, with Holton Hill getting playing time I think a lot of people were uh, rightly impressed by Holton Hill last year but I think uh, you know if you look at like his passer rating allowed or even his coverage grade um, it kind of overstates um, his talent at least as a rookie uh, because he got so much help from Zimmer in terms of like this the safeties shading him and the play calls that were called so that he wasn't really put in a position to be a liability um, and then on the converse you know I think when you see uh, other players get better, it sort of frees Zimmer up to tinker a little bit more. I think we saw this with when Sendejo kind of became a, a good quality free safety. It really allowed Smith to come down into the box and play the robber and do a lot more like freestyling stuff, um, which really was a big uh, ingredient in the 2017 Vikings uh, defensive dominance. So I think, um, you know, when you have a player like Xavier Rose who you can trust one-on-one on an island, or when you have, a player like Harrison Smith, you want to be able to free him up to, to allow Zimmer to scheme up other crazy stuff. So, you know, if you gave him a bunch of poor players and poor Zimmer to play, you know, a bunch of cover two, uh, they would, would probably be better than other coaches, but uh, you're just sort of, hamstered. you're, you're kind of making him play with one hand behind his back. If you're not giving him enough talent. So um, it's just a balance there.
0: We saw that in 2015, where in, the game against Seattle at the at the uh, US Bank, or uh, TCF Bank Stadium, Anthony Barr, I think Harrison Smith and I believe Linville Joseph all got injured within the first like drive. And they got absolutely destroyed on defense by you know Wilson and company. And then the Thursday, like, four days later, they went and played a Arizona team that was going to make the basically make the Super Bowl of that year. And in just four days, you're starting Edmund Robinson at Sam and you're starting Anthony Harris as an undrafted guy straight off the practice squad. Uh, Trey Waynes, I think, started that game. Terrence Newman played at free safety. And I don't think they had a brilliant defensive effort that game, but they certainly kept it close. I think they covered the spread, all that kind of stuff. So, like, you're right. I think, obviously, you you don't become the best defense with that personnel, but I don't think you become a disaster either. And then that begs the question, why are you going to get Anthony Barr from the Jets when – like the goal should be to, to get your defense to above average and not to be getting it from like really good to brilliant. Um, given that that offense is is what it is,
1: yeah. So, so given that, and given the things you guys have, have, have said kind of earlier in this podcast, and I know it's the coaching one, we were focused on that, but I, I am interested, is uh. Yeah, where 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 would you guys be going as we kind of look at say the first two days of, of the draft? Given that free agency is largely largely over for us, we're broke, so it's, it's draft <laughs> time. Um, yeah, wh- where where would you guys be uh, be investing uh, more heavily as as you look at the first couple of days of the draft? There are you like Eric? You mentioned you know like a greedy Williams or something. Like, would you really actually go and pull the trigger on that, or, or would you really be looking to? To, to do what most are expecting or hoping the Vikings will do which is just you know, really fortify that offensive line so that maybe a Josh line doesn't have to start.
0: I mean, for me, I look at things I wouldn't do first. I wouldn't draft a kicker. I wouldn't draft a punter. Uh, I wouldn't trade up to do either. Um, I, I'm not going to draft an off the ball linebacker. Um, I'm not going to take, interior is tough because I think like Shamar Stefan doesn't really like move the needle at all. And there are some really good interior players there, um, but they don't move the needle nearly as much. Um, So for me, like, where does that go? I think, you know, the receive the, I don't think necessarily the receivers at the top end of the draft really do what the Vikings want them to do. And so sort of by process of elimination that leads you to either trade down uh, and accumulate picks, um, which I don't think is going to be, the, their way they go or you know treated you know happily by the fan base or uh draft offensive linemen draft corners draft def- defense um edge is also an, another intriguing spot because Everson Griffin's probably you know basically done um and you know Daniel Hunter's great but then the other guys that they have across from him the Stephen Weatherly's of the world like they're still up in the air in terms of whether or not they're going to be really good NFL players so Uh, I I'm looking at those, you know, the corners, the edges, but then I think the offensive line, I think I do, I can be pushed in that direction significantly at this point.
1: Wow. And when you say offensive line, is that any position on the offensive line, like tackles, like are you going interior at 18 if the right person falls to you?
0: Yeah. Because, because I think the, the distinction, so Dalton riser could play tackle or guard. So like, I don't see the distinction being as big as people think.
1: Okay. I like that. Nick, how about you, man?
2: I agree with a lot of that. I think um, you know, it's interesting. There are, there are reasons to kind of take, not take everybody. I think the reason you wouldn't want to take like, offensive line in the first is just the value there, um, and maybe it makes sense to take a tackle there when you can get like, a Chris Lindstrom at 50, um, but the Vikings already have Reef and O'Neal. Um, if they draft another tackle, then you're kicking Reef into left guard that they've never really done that. Uh, so that's another uh, who knows how that would pan out? We saw it go disastrously for Rammers. I don't think reef would necessarily we should expect it to go that bad. but um, I think wide receiver and tight end, that would be great. but I also think <clears throat> you know Kyle Rudolph is a is a solid receiver. Um, and David Morgan is a very good blocking tight end, so they're kind of. Uh, there's not a ton of room to improve. And in fact, given how poorly uh, tight ends tend to play their first years, I wouldn't necessarily ex- expect uh, much improvement there. Um, wide receiver is uh, it's, it's always a kind of a crap shoot and you always see the Stefan digs in the fifth round playing really well. So um, I could see us going corner. I wouldn't hate that like the rest of Vikings Twitter would. Um, I think uh, it would make a lot of sense to go offensive line just because uh Josh Klein and Danny, Danny Isadora have the potential to be game-breakingly bad in the way that TJ Clemmings was back in 2015-16. Um, so, um, yeah, I would. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the Vikings' draft history is that they have always neglected defensive line, and I think they've gotten away with it because Andre Patterson is, is kind of like the coach scar of defensive line, where he's always taking, you know, Everson Griffin was a fourth-rounder. Daniel Hunter was a third-rounder. Um, and, and you can go back and back to the, to the Jared Allen's or the, 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 the Ray Edwards or whoever, Brian Robinson. Um, and they've been able to find these sort of diamonds in the rough later in the, in the, in the draft and just bring them in on athletic talent. Um, and I think for that reason, I think it, it, it's, it's as tempting as like an Ed Oliver would be. And, you know, I would take Ed Oliver at 18 just because of the value. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to not invest a lot of draft capital and the Vikings haven't, you know, the only first rounder they've taken on the defensive line last decade was Sharif Floyd. Um, whereas most other teams, you know, draft one every two, three years or something. So um, to the extent you can continue to uh, leverage that positional coach into talented defensive line players without having to invest the capital. Um, I think it makes sense to prioritize cornerback, offensive line and skill panel. So.
0: Yeah, the Sheree Floyd thing is heartbreaking. He was a he yeah. was gonna be a good player.
2: Yeah, he was so good. But go so good.
1: All right, man, ended the show on a bower, But I feel like we've gone through uh everything that there really is to go through uh at this point, kind of discussing coaching and, and and the impacts. And and Eric, you made a comment. Uh at this point I can't remember if it was you're in the group chat or on the pod, but really just JDSB uh, uh John D. Fulipo, excuse me, being the uh, the worst, uh <laughs> and us potentially going from the worst to not the worst, maybe average. Uh, can you just remind me what that would be in terms of you know wins, generally
0: speaking? I mean, we haven't really put a number on the wins, but I would probably say you're talking about half to a full. Oh. So the Vikings over under this year's what, eight and a half? Is that what they hung today? Nine. I'm not rushing to bet the under given all the things now. The Vikings are probably gonna be favored in about ten of their games this year, which I think is a uptick uh from what people would expect.
1: Yeah,
2: oh. that's more than I would have expected. Yeah. I like that. My oh. one concern with I you know, I I'm not a huge D flippo fan, but I will say um his commitment to the pass, I think, was something that has gotten a lot of uh, unnecessary criticism. My one concern with moving on from D Filippo is we're just going to end up doing the the run, run, pass, punt offense, where yeah. uh, we're running to the extent that it is, uh, especially behind the offensive line. I mean, Dalvin Cook is great, but it's running running efficiency is mostly about the success of how well you guys are blocking up front. So that's something that concerns me, but. I think if you can, uh, you can more than make up for it by a better designed passing offense.
0: I agree, and I think the the issue with the passing the ball so much is not the passing the ball so much; it's being inefficient throwing on first down. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is is how good you are as a as a play caller as a schemer.
1: Yeah, those those short passes to Stefan Diggs on first down were uh, painful to watch. Those screen designs were awful.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm also thinking about, like, just, like, well, it's strange, but I'm, I'm thinking about the passes to the running backs that aren't, like, Like I know Warren Sharp talks about, you know, passes to the running back being efficient. And in, in all my work, I've, you know, I think running backs that are lined up as receivers can be efficient in the pass game, especially on early downs, um, but throws to actual players out of the backfield or not, and the Vikings try, you know, I – it seemed like the Vikings were especially prone to doing that. um so yeah, i I'm optimistic about how they'll play this year. I think obviously Kirk has to step up and play better, and I think you know, the offensive line, if you get anything close to seventeen with them, um I think they'll be pretty damn, you know, they'll be something to contend with, but um, but, you know, I, I'm still like I'm I'm cautious about it because again last season was exactly what we we all said would happen and so we're nervous.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Nervous is fair. All right. Well, before we get out of here, Eric, uh, you're a busy man. You know, from from YouTube rocking the Zeke look to uh, articles that make people upset to uh, occasionally you know dr- detonating uh, you know nuclear bombs on on the Twitter.com. What else you uh you got going on? What should we be on the lookout for, man?
0: Um well, I'm not going to tweet at, I'm not going to have to delete any old tweets. <laughs> 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 Cuz <'Cause, laughs> <whoo! laughs> <laughs> So So um no, I so I've been a little I haven't written in a while other than a I had do some AF content, which is kind of fun. Um but then I'm I'm writing an article early this week about offensive line, like sort of what translates um, you know, from combine data to PFF grades, sort of, we have a, a decent enough data set now to this point where we, I think can be pretty definitive about, uh, you know, what translates. So I'll have an article out there, uh, and then just getting ready for the draft, getting ready to build products for teams and, and, uh, and, uh, a, a lot of college content as well. I think we're going to rev that up going into next season. And so we're really excited to, uh, to start, uh, you know, sort of the build on a lot of those. So a lot of fun.
1: I'm excited about that article you're writing, so that I can stop asking you about the article that you previously wrote that wasn't actually an article and it was actually just something you talked about on the forecast at one time. So I will uh, stop searching for that article that doesn't exist because you'll have a new one that I can actually read this time.
0: Yeah. yeah, I know. I can't. I think offensive line was like something I literally just sent you the graph and I never actually published it last year. So then this year I'll I'll have something a little bit hopefully more uh, definitive in that space.
1: Awesome. And uh, how about you, Nick? What, uh, what should we be on the lookout for?
2: I'm working on that Kirk Cousins Pocket Presence article still. Um, got a little sidetracked because finally got around to start watching tape on some of the college prospects. So, um, And I want to catch up because draft is coming up in less than a month. But I've got all the I watched um, all the dropbacks already. So that's done. And that's the biggest work is just doing the film work. Um, and I've got the cut up. So now it's, I really just got to write the article and put it together and make it pretty. So uh, I don't know when that'll drop. Maybe this week. Don't want to give myself a deadline. But we'll see if it drops.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to that. And as you did mention the draft, then uh, starting not this week, but next week, we'll be doing a daily short draft show. Jr. and Miles will be breaking down each of the position groups, giving you their favorite prospect for each day of the draft in those groups and a little bit about what they look at for each of the position groups as we move along. So it'll be about a 10-15 minute, 10, 15 minute show every day to get you up to date on what's happening with all the prospects that you should care about for the draft. So uh, excited to get that one recorded again and uh, as always excited to, to talk to you fine gentlemen. Thank you uh, for coming on and recording with me this evening nick eric uh, have a wonderful night listeners uh thanks for sticking with us have a good one